Well, good morning, and we're glad that you're here with us. And uh, if you will, make your way in, to, in the Bible to the book of Malachi, the last of the Old Testament books. And we are in chapter 2 this morning. As we continue looking at the book of Malachi on Sunday mornings, if you're new with us, we'd like to welcome you here. And also just kind of let you know what we do here. Uh, on Sunday mornings, like Wednesday evenings, we take a book of the Bible and we start at verse 1, chapter 1, and we go right through the book, uh, getting every verse, every uh, chapter, and looking at the book in context. And we find ourselves in the book of Malachi this morning in a series we've entitled Indifference. The children of Israel had now been back in the land for almost 130 years. They were removed from the land of Israel due to their disobedience to God, and God promised that if they would not be obedient, they would be removed, taken captive by their enemies, that is the Babylonians, to allow the land to rest a certain period of time that the children of Israel would not allow for themselves. But as the time grew closer to the return of the Israelites to their land, in 535 B.C., uh, Cyrus, I should say, allowed, he was the uh, emperor of the Persian, Medes and the Persians, who overthrew the Babylonians, And after ever overthrowing the Babylonians, he saw that the Jewish people were in their servitude and they were taken captive. And so Cyrus decided to release the individuals, that is the Israelites, back to their homeland. But when they got back to their land, the land was a mess. It had been devastated by the Babylonian army. Jerusalem was just a heap of rubble. The temple had been destroyed. They weren't going back to much. The wall around Jerusalem was completely dismantled. And so they were really, once again, starting from scratch. And you know, that can be a very difficult position to start from. I think all of us have seen at one time or another, or possibly experienced for ourselves, what kind of devastation a storm or a hurricane or a tornado can do to a person's home or a fire or a flood. It's hard to start up again. It's hard to rebuild. But God encouraged his people by sending various prophets and individuals to them to encourage them along the way. Ezra encouraged the rebuilding of the temple along with Haggai because the temple had stalled. It had been uh, being built, and then they subsided, and then they started building it again, then they subsided. And finally, Haggai came and said, just finish it. Kind of like when, you know, your wife says, just finish the bathroom, all right? You started six and a half months ago. We've got one new outlet cover. That's all we've got. And so Haggai comes, and they begin to fix and rebuild the temple. Nehemiah is burdened by the Lord, and he then goes to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And he had difficulties every step of the way, but yet the walls got built. And so finally, after being released in 535 B.C., by 515 B.C., the city was rebuilt. The wall was restored, the temple was reconstructed, and as a result, 
the children of Israel were, were thinking then that things were going to go back to the normal manner that they had come accustomed to, that they were going to once again reach a place of prosperity, and that they were going to be returned into the zenith or, zenith or the peak of their existence there in Israel, and yet it didn't happen overnight. In fact, even being back in the land, even with the temple, that caused a problem because the older Jewish people said, oh, look at that temple. It's nothing like the one we had before. I'm glad you like it, but it's really nothing compared to the one we had before, but it'll do. And it discouraged the younger ones who were thrilled about having a temple at all once again. And then they had problems with the Persian Empire constantly overshadowing uh, their sovereign authority. They had problems agriculturally where they had too much rain or too little rain and the harvest was never enough or was, the harvest was uh, completely washed out and so forth. They had problems with their neighbors. They had problems amongst themselves. And as a result, their difficulties provoked them and pushed them into a position of indifference before God. They got mad at God. And God, we're back in our land. We have a temple. It's nothing like the one we had before. We have our walls around Jerusalem, and yet we're still having problems. And here it has been almost 100 years now since the completion of the walls and the temple and so forth, and still we're struggling. We're going through difficulties. And so as a result they took their frustrations out towards God. Especially the Levitical priests. The ones who were supposed to be the example to the people, leading the people in a manner in which God had prescribed through His covenant with them. Instead, they were showing God disdain, despising His name each and every step of the way offering polluted sacrifices upon the altar, which we looked at last week together. And the people were growing ever more indifferent to God. They, he was kind of an afterthought. They really didn't take heed or care to how they interacted with Him. They simply went about their lives. They got busy with their own doings. They got busy with their own affairs and their own things. And God was kind of a, a distant second in their thinking because, hey, what's the point? We did everything He asked us to do and yet things are still going difficult uh, for us. And so why should we expend any more energy and effort and, uh, and waste any more time serving Him? let's just go do our own thing. And the priests led the way. The ones who were supposed to be responsible for the health of the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. Today as Christians, I find that many wrestle with God when things get difficult in our lives. I don't know how or when the individuals came to the conclusion that once you became a Christian, everything would get better. Everything would be a, a bed of roses. Everything would be, you know, ponies and rainbows. Everything was going to be perfect. I don't know where they ever got that notion from. It's certainly not the Christianity of the Bible. And the Bible makes it clear that once you become a Christian, it gets a much more difficult. But... Every so often, 
After a long period of difficulty and struggling and going through hard times, a Christian's heart can start growing cold and become indifferent to the things of God. That indifference manifests itself by uh, it's just the lackadaisical manner in which we handle the things of God, such as the Word of God. We have no real desire to read and to spend time within it. Prayer, we simply feel like we're just talking to the ceiling above us, and the prayers that we are offering or asking are not going any further than that. When it comes to the people that we are supposed to be examples to, showing them the light amongst the darkness of our world, those people become not a lost individual in need of the gospel, but a burden, a nuisance, and an inconvenience to us, and we just try to avoid them altogether. In fact, some may even grow bitter and critical towards these people and say, well, whatever uh, they get, they deserve for the manner in which they conducted their lives. When it comes to the generosity of the people, the things of God in their service and in their giving become secondary. They have no joy, no heart, and they lose the understanding that they are a mere uh, steward of all that God has given them. And oftentimes this begins with those leading within the church. We have a problem with the pulpits of America today in a large degree. We have been inundated by individuals who believe that they are CEOs of corporations rather than pastors who are there to love and to feed God's people. We have those who believe that they are, well, of great stature and notoriety and They are now celebrities in the pulpit and they travel with their entourage and their makeup bags and so forth and they go from place to place and and they're, you know, uh, people admire them and they're celebrated when they enter a room and, and yet those people forget that Jesus did not come to be served but to serve. The problems with much of the church today stems from the problems within the pulpits of the church today. The priests. Just like the priests of the Old Testament, the pastors, the leaders of today need to take heed to the warnings of Malachi. My job is very simple, but at the same time, it is one of the most difficult endeavors one can ever Uh, partake in. My job is to teach you the Word of God and to love you as Jesus would. Now you think, well, that sounds pretty easy. Well, try it sometime. It's not that you're not lovable. You are. But it means you first and me second. My job is not to be served by you. My job is to serve you as your pastor. I'm to do it with humility I'm to do it along the prescriptions in which God has prescribed within His Word. I am to teach you the Word of God to allow you, therefore, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that you may become a mature, healthy Christian in the Lord. It is not my job to write books and to become famous in that regard, or to produce movies, or to... 
uh, have my own TV show, though I've been blessed, I've been told, with a face for radio. <laughs> my job is to love you as Christ would love you, to teach you as Christ would teach you. My job, third and foremost, third and foremost, is also to be an example for you. To lead you, not by just what I say, but also by that in which I do. To be that example going forward for you. And it is in all of these things that the priest of Malachi's day failed. And God is going to take them to task for it. And we're going to find four specific things that he rebukes them for here in our uh, text this morning, the first nine verses of chapter two. He's going to say to them, first and foremost, that you are not listening to me, he says to the priests. And therefore, if you are not listening to me and taking that which I say to heart, how can you be effective leading the people that you are meant to lead? If you're not following me. Secondly, they were also meant to live up to the standard, that is, be the example in which God wanted them to be for the people. I don't know when we decided that the minister today had the privilege of saying, don't do what I do, do what I say. We're supposed to lead by example. And I had the privilege, I've had the privilege, I should say, to have been taught by some very godly men to see what it means to truly love people, to truly serve people, to truly teach them a healthy uh, balance of the Word of God, and to lead by example. Thirdly, he's going to indict them for stumbling the people. Instead of helping them to grow to become mature Christians, or at that point, Jews, they were stumbling them. Their sin was causing the people to sin. And fourthly, they were handling the word with partiality. Basically, telling the people what they wanted to hear rather than what they needed to hear. And these are very relevant for us today. And again, as Malachi now, as the Lord, I should say, addresses the priests of that time, here in Malachi chapter 2, verse 1, let us read the first nine verses together in a message that I've entitled, Living in Indifference. This is the epitome of one whose heart has grown indifferent with God. And it starts with the leadership of the church. I know that many of you know this, and it's a sad thing that you have experienced, but so goes the leaders of the church, so goes the church, correct? And if you've been under an abusive leadership, which unfortunately, sh that should be an oxymoron uh, in the Christian community, but unfortunately that has been the case in some of your lives, I apologize for that this morning that you've had to experience that in other places. I'm sorry for the moral failures that many pastors have fallen into. I'm sorry that some pastors treat you as you're just simply a means to an end. 
that instead of seeing you as the person that you are in Christ, they see a dollar sign possibly above your head, knowing what you contribute financially per year and then treating you accordingly. One with great favor and the other who gives little with disdain and, you know, so forth. I'm sorry for that. That surely doesn't reflect the heart of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry and I apologize for those pastors who have made the pulpit all about them instead of exalting and glorifying the name of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry. Because it doesn't reflect the heart of God in any way, shape, or form. But as we begin to read, let us take now these verses into consideration and we'll go back and look at the four standouts that we see from them. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, he says, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. You shall demand to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me, and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of the priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Father, we ask now you prepare our hearts for your word. And that, Father, here at this church, Lord, we would honor your word and your heart in all that we do for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. First and foremost, they would not listen and honor the Lord, verses 1 through 3. Let's look at them. And now, O priests, he's speaking to the tribe of Levi. If you remember the uh, Israelites, there were 12 tribes, and each one of those tribes was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And the tribe of Levi was set aside for the purpose of simply ministering on God on behalf of the people and behalf of God to the people. That was their job. They were to be the priests that uh, worked within the, uh, the tabernacle and then when they settled in Jerusalem, worked within the temple. And they were the ones that helped the people come before God and, the, and God before the people as an intermediary between the two. 
And he's speaking to them. He says, this command is for you. If you will not listen, and if you will not take it to heart and to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. They no longer desired to listen to God. The word listen there in the Hebrew doesn't only mean hearing that which is from God, but also hearing and doing that which is from God. They no longer desire to they no longer desired to properly represent God before the people. They had no desire to be obedient to God before the people any longer. They despised his name, his character, who he was, and one of the manifestations of the indifference of their heart was the fact that they no longer listened to God. And therefore, he brought about the curse. What is the curse? In the Mosaic law, this was the law that was given to Moses that was going to govern the nation of Israel. God made it plain to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 that if they obeyed him, he would bless them accordingly. And that would be an indication that God was with them and pleased with them, etc., and he would bless them accordingly. But if they disobeyed God, he would curse them accordingly. Deuteronomy chapter 28, next chapter over. And this is the curse in which he speaks about. As the book of Deuteronomy states in Deuteronomy 28.15, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Instead of prosperity, they would experience poverty and they'd be plagued by it. Instead of health, they would bring up, God would allow them to experience sickness and disease. Instead of full harvest, they would have droughts and famines. Instead of being fruitful in fertility and having many children, they would become childless and barren. These are all part of these curses. Instead of peace, they would be under constant conflict and war. And instead of having an abundance of life, they would experience death and destruction. Now, Many today want to tell us that these blessings and cursings rule and govern a Christian's life as well. But we are not under the Mosaic law. We are under the new covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. And so God doesn't interact with us in this regard. God does not promise that all of his followers will be healthy. God does not promise that all of his uh, followers will be uh, prosperous. God does not promise that we would not experience hard times. God does not promise that we would not struggle with being barren and not able to have children. God does not promise that he would keep us from war and conflict. And God does not promise that we may not die on behalf of his name. But what he does promise us is this, that he will be with us every step of the way. So let us be clear that this was something, this was the regulations, if you were, that God used to govern the children of Israel. Now, can God heal? Absolutely. I have no problem with that. Can God raise the dead? Absolutely. Can God prosper and bless? Absolutely he can. 
Can God allow us to be fruitful? Sure he can. Can God allow us to experience peace even in the wake of difficulties? Absolutely he can. And does he give us life? Yes. And does he give us life here more abundantly? Yes, he does. But let us know that it's not always going to be a rose garden and that we shouldn't automatically look at our circumstances and conclude like the children of Israel did that God was for them or against them. So next time you go through great blessings, know this, that God is with you. And when you go through great difficulties, know this, that God is with you and that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And this is the curse, and he says it's already come upon you, and the blessings that you already have are dissipating. That's what he's saying. But this would not only affect them, the priests currently involved in the service there in the temple, but their offspring. God was going to raise up new priests in their place from the tribe of Levi, one that would have his heart, one that would have his mind towards the people. And he uses very descriptive words there. And if you turn there with me in verse 3, he says, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, and the dung, the dung that is, of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Pastor, are you really saying that he's going to put poop, (laughs) the technical Hebrew word, on their face? Yeah. Yeah. The word dung there could also be translated into our English word offal, O-F-F-A-L, or offal, which means not only the waste material from the animals that were being sacrificed, such as, you know, the bowels uh, movements and so forth, but also that of the entrails and those things that were laid a waste. And if the priest came into contact with these things, uh, he was then defiled and had to clean himself and purify himself once again. And God says, I'm just going to dump you into it. I'm going to pour it all over you and I'm going to get you out of there. And the people are going to see you for the defiled hearts in which you actually have. That's what he's saying here. Not only you, but your offspring aren't going to come up after you to serve me in this way. It's an ugly picture, but it is certainly a uh, dynamic illustration to say the least. I'm going to get rid of you. I'm going to remove you from these positions. Verse 4. So shall you know then that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi... Now, Levi was the brother of Moses. He was the one that God first made the covenant with. And Levi wasn't perfect, Levi had his problems also. However, though, he desired always to be right with God. His heart wanted to do what was right for God. But for my covenant's sake, he says in verse 4, that I made with Levi, that it may stand, says the Lord of hosts, my covenant with him was one of life and peace. Levi honored God. And when we talk about honoring God, I used five words to describe what that honor looked like that we find throughout the Old and New Testament. Those words are love, number one. Honor incorporates love. It incorporates, number two, respect. Number three, obedience. Number four, trust. 
And number five, glorification. This is what it means to honor God, to love Him, to respect Him, to obey Him, to trust Him, to glorify Him. And since they were refusing to do so, God says, I will remove you for the sake of the covenant that I made with Levi, for he did honor me. He wasn't perfect. He messed up. But when he did, he got right with me. And he desired the right things as a priest. And he allowed me to work in and through him. As one wrote, he says, to honor God means to give him the rightful place of authority by rendering to him gifts of tribute. Or as another one summed it up, he said, to honor God means to be faithful to him in all areas of life. And it was in this that God states our second problem with the priests. First, they would not listen and honor to him, give honor to him. And secondly, they would not live up to the standards in which he set down for them. For the covenant that he made with Levi was one that would lead people into life and into peace. And in the corrupt manner in which the priests were handling the things of God, neither one of those were being accomplished in the life of the people. And therefore that corruption permeated and distorted what God desired to bring about in and through his relationship to that covenant. Bringing the people the proper instruction of the Lord would then lead them into this life and peace. Look at verse 5 with me again, if you will. But my covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear. That means a rever reverential fear. I, I reverenced God and he did reverence me in the sense that he feared me for who I am. And this word I love sums up both. He says, he stood in awe of my name the only proper position for all of us. And in verse 6, true instruction now was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and in uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. His responsibility was to properly instruct the nation of Israel on how they should interact and how they should live with God. They should teach the people on how to love and honor and worship the Lord through the covenant in which he has given them. Teaching them to find peace with God by obeying the Lord and by loving one another. This is what God desired. This is what God wanted. He wanted the priests to walk within a fear and a reverence of the Lord. He wanted them to walk and to teach and to uh, communicate with the people of Israel God's truth. And he uses Levi as the example for them. Unfortunately, instead of turning people to God, they were turning people away from God. 
and they were causing people to sin rather than to find salvation in the Lord. And it all started with them. And God rebukes them for not living up to the standard in which he set before them to walk in and to obey. In fact, in one place, in Numbers 25, 10 through 13, he admonishes Phineas, the son of Eleazar, for his dutiful manner in which he lived out his life as a priest. And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Israel. That's what God desired. That's my job to help you to fall so deeply in love with God that everything of the world pales in comparison. To exhort you to love your neighbor as yourself, allowing them to see that something is radically different in your life from those around them. But also the Lord rebuked them for turning others to away rather than to following God. Look with, at verse 8 with me. But you have turned aside from the way. The manner in which I prescribed you have neglected. You've turned away from it. And you, as a result of that, you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. They tripped people up. They caused people to fall before the Lord. Jesus was so serious about stumbling, he says that if anyone stumbles any of these little ones, speaking of the children in which he was ministering to, if any were to stumble these little ones, it would be better that a millstone be put around his neck and him thrown into the sea. James says to me, It's a verse that I sometimes wake up in a cold sweat considering. Don't let all of you become teachers too quickly. For those who are teachers will have a larger account of accountability. God's going to hold me responsible for you. But I know that God will also give me the grace to fulfill that which he has called me to fulfill for you. And that's my job, to lead you as an example. Now, I'm going to say this, and it may shock some of you, but I have to do it for your well-being. I am, well, just again, prepared. I am not perfect. I know, I know. I'll just give you a minute to chew on it. Let it sink in. I know, I, I, I've just stumbled quite a few. We should be very careful not to put any on a pedestal. They will fail us. There's only room for one on that pedestal, and that's Jesus Christ. But Paul did say to those in him he wrote to, follow me as I follow Christ. 
Paul saw that being an example was necessary and important and was needed. I can't instruct you on how to live if I'm not going to live according to that instruction. Does that make sense? That's called hypocrisy. And that's exactly what was happening amongst these individuals. They were becoming hypocritical. They were doing one thing and saying another. And their corruption caused individuals to stumble, to fall, and to turn away and to grow further in their indifference towards God. My job is to cause you to desire God more and more. They were causing the people to despise God more and more. And that indifference was growing and it started with the priest and God held the priest responsible first and foremost before he went on and dealt with the nation. Instead of obeying, they disobeyed and many stumbled at it. Growing up in the 1980s as a Christian, I was one of those Christians who constantly had to continue to apologize for the number of televangelists that kept just absolutely blatantly sinning against God. Begging for people's money, saying, send your prayer request in with your financial donation and I will make sure that it goes before the altar of God in heaven. Only to discover that many of those prayer requests ended up in a dumpster behind the bank after the financial contribution was removed. I remember those who would pre- uh, preach against lust and sexual immorality only to be found three weeks later with a prostitute. Not once, twice, but three or four times. And I remember telling people and talking to people about Jesus Christ. And the first thing that they associated with Jesus Christ was that. And today when I talk to people about Jesus in our current culture, you know what is standing between me and them in this conversation? And the, it's inhibiting them from seeing who Jesus really is? It's not the world. It's not the social injustice that people see and the suffering even. It's the hypocrisy of the church that's causing individuals to not be able to see Jesus clearly in and through our lives. And many have told me straight up, I'll listen to you about Jesus, but don't talk to me about church. Are we not going the same way that these priests did in many ways? They caused people to stumble rather than causing them to desire God by living as an example. And number four, they showed partiality amongst their instruction, verse 9. And, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, he says, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Show partiality in Hebrew means this, to lift up one's face. What does that mean? It means that these individuals, these priests had made a had perfected the art of telling people what they wanted to hear. They became a political machine. And whatever was desired by the people is what the priests met them with, to lift up their face. 
Not telling them what they needed to hear, but simply telling them what they wanted to hear and using the word of God, not in its integrity, but in its partiality and using it to manipulate the people into performing in the manner in which the priests prescribed rather than what God had prescribed. Boy, you don't have to look far to shop for an answer amongst Christianity today. If one church says something's a sin, it doesn't take too hard or or too much effort to find another one that says it's perfectly acceptable to God. And that's causing great confusions, the partiality in which the Word of God is being used and partialed amongst the people. But how many of the pulpits of America today are telling people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear? And as a result, they got people coming back each and every week for the cotton candy. And whenever the meat or the milk is tried or is introduced, the people choke on it and they don't want it. And it's not exciting or fun for them any longer. And you have a lot of fat and happy sheep, but not a lot of healthy ones. Or we've made the church all about entertainment entertaining the the flesh and bringing them to an emotional climax of some sort and then saying, look, the Spirit of God has moved. Well, then if that's the criteria for the Spirit of moving, every time I watch Old Yeller, I'm totally in the Spirit. I go from happy to sad instantaneously. An emotional response doesn't necessarily equate that God has worked, Right? So these priests were showing partiality amongst the people. There are four great takeaways for us, and I quickly want to move through these for you from our text this morning. Number one, if you find yourself in a place of indifference towards God, first and foremost, you probably have stopped listening to God. That listening is hearing what he is saying and obeying it. For James says for us, And I'll read this to you, James 1, 19 through 25. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not produce righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. But be doers of the word and not only hearers, he says, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, at once forgets what he, has, what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. God works in your life the moment you become a Christian the spirit that is that had been dead within you is resurrected and it is in that area in which God then interacts with you the spirit then that is resurrected then fills the void of the conscience that was left after the fall and within that place of the conscience is where the spirit of God then convicts you for what is right and wrong and if you try to negate that conviction for a lengthy period of time, you will grow callous to that conviction and become desensitized to it. And therefore, 
you will not reap for yourself the curses in which the priests of our text did, but you will reap for yourselves the consequences of your sin for not obeying the Lord. And those consequences can sometimes be very, very severe, can't they? Which God would have spared you from if you only had listened to Him. Number two, if we become indifferent to God, no longer will we walk worthy of Him. That's a phrase that you may not have heard before. As they did not walk in the standard in which he prescribed, we may not walk in the manner in which God prescribes for us. Notice with me what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another, with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. The book of Ephesians, if you read it, those six chapters, interesting manner in which it's laid out. First three are all theological. In fact, it's packed full of theology. But then you get to chapter four, which is the practical application of all the theology in which you've just read. After Paul tells you all that God has done for you, he then says, now walk worthy of that. And Paul then further went on to say in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that the manner of worthiness is laying ourselves down before the Lord as a living sacrifice, accepting and maintaining the banner of not my will, but your will be done, Lord. How can we not read of all that Christ has done for us as believers in Jesus Christ and not respond with, thank you, Lord. Now give me the grace and the spirit to walk the manner in which you would have me to walk. I don't walk in this way to earn my salvation. I don't walk in this way to maintain my salvation. I walk in this way because of my salvation. Number three, our indifference will manifest itself in the manner in which it did with the priests. And instead of drawing people onto Jesus, we're going to dispel people from Jesus and stumble them through our poor witness. Notice what Paul said here in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Notice how he noticed him or saw himself. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That is all of us here. We are all new creations in Christ. The old has passed away, and behold, all things, the new has come. All this is from God, he says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Our lives, our lives are meant to reconcile those who are estranged from God. Let me just add that if I may for a moment. And he goes on, verse 19, that is, in Christ, in God, I'm sorry, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And in verse 20, notice this. Therefore, as a result of everything we just read, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
That's God's desire for you. That you be an ambassador of Christ in the darkness of this world. Allowing people to see the light in you. And then allowing that light to draw people unto God. The Bible calls us living epistles. Some may never open the Bible to read it for themselves, but Paul says that people will read your life. And just, so, just as the Bible contains in the New Testament epistles, letters, he says you are in a living epistle and people are reading you. Well, let me ask you a question. What are they reading when they read your life? Are you an agent, an ambassador, drawing and asking individuals to be reconciled with God through Christ Jesus? Or is your life turning those away and stumbling them for the cause of Christ? And lastly, number four. Many will pick and choose what they want to believe, but yet Paul tells us clearly as he's writing to Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. What's the first word of that verse? All. If I may get technical with you for just a moment, the Greek understanding of the word all means all. Sorry, I had to lay that on you. I know it's kind of heavy. The smallest words of the Bible often give me the greatest amount of difficulty because they mean exactly what they mean. That the Word of God, the Bible, is God's inspired Word. He wrote through the hands of these individuals what He wanted to be written, allowing for their, uh, their style and their character and their uh, personality to be found in the writing, but it is God that was writing it all in and through them through the power of the Spirit. And all the scripture is breathed out by God, Old Testament and new, for reproof, that is a correction, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or God, a woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We cannot pick and choose what we choose to believe, as these priests did. As many Christians feel that it's okay and acceptable for them to do today. We need to take it in its totality because Jesus says you search the scriptures daily and try to find eternal life within them but it is me in whom they testify of. Let us be careful that in our living in indifference we do not first and foremost cease listening to God. If that's you then I ask you to turn your ear back to him again. In our indifference let us not walk unworthy of all that Christ has done for us. Let us walk in a manner that properly reflects our gratitude and appreciation for all that he has done for us. Let us understand, number three, that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And God could use anyone, but chooses to use you. And you're going to go into places that I may never ever venture into or be invited into. You're going to go and to minister to those people and they're going to read your book and decide and to conclude about God. And number four, let us not pick and choose what we choose to accept as God's word, but let's look at it in the totality in which it is given within the context in which it was provided 
and let us understand it for what it is truly saying to us today. Because living in indifference is missing one of the greatest opportunities that we've ever been presented with in our history.